Well, good morning, friends, on this Easter Sunday. It's my privilege and honor to share God's word with you today. And so before we do that, let's pray together. A gracious and loving God, we pray that only your word be spoken, only your word heard, and only your word lived. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's Easter Sunday, and this is the most important day in the Christian year. Now, if you're a regular attender to our online church, This is a day of celebration. Jesus rose from the dead. But maybe you're visiting for the first or second time and the resurrection of Jesus isn't something that's really on your radar. Or maybe you're highly skeptical about it and don't believe it happened at all. So no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, first I wanna say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And although here I am saying that this is the most important uh, day in the Christian year and the cause for celebration, I also have to recognize that this is the second Easter that we're celebrating in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. And I recognize that there are many who are living uh, in fear in the face of sickness and death. Many of us have been sort of exhausted, waiting for things to get back to a, a new and better normal. And then we see the numbers go down, and we see them spike back up, and we've had our hopes dashed over and over again the possibility that this might end quickly. And the more we think about it, we also recognize that there are serious problems besides sickness. Uh, There have been major disruptions in every sector of society uh, that will last for years. There's been unemployment. There's been the failure of so many businesses. And these realities will uh, jeopardize the lives of millions, especially due to forced isolation and the despair that comes from not being able to connect with each other. Listen, I'm I'm bringing this up. I don't mean to pour salt on the wound. But as I was reflecting on what to share this morning, it didn't feel right at all to share this superficial message of like positivity without taking into account where we are right now. I want to be as honest about as I can about our situation because I believe that in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of financial insecurity, in the face of sickness and death, We are in desperate need for a new foundation of hope. And I believe, I'm deeply persuaded, that there's no greater hope possible than to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And this is something that I'd like to explore today. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the words of St. Paul when he says that Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. And if you grasp this great fact of history, then even when you find things going dark, this hope becomes a light for you when all other lights go out. And that's why St. Paul can add, likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we we will live with him. As I was reflecting on these words by St. Paul, I was reminded of a an excellent book that's been a help to so many, and it's titled The Three Gospels by Reynolds Price. Now, Reynolds Price, he was a a dramatist, he was an essayist, he was a professor at Duke University, and he was also a fiction writer. And in this book, when he's reflecting on Jesus, uh, especially the resurrection narratives, uh, what he writes is, 
uh, he believes, he was persuaded that any fiction writer reading those narratives would immediately see that they aren't fiction. And he makes this whole list of things that stand out. And he says that one of the things that, that he notices right away that we would notice if we were also fiction writers is all the extra details that just aren't necessary. I mean, you wouldn't put them in if you were writing fiction. And so, for example, when Jesus appears to the disciples in John chapter 21, uh, when the disciples catch a ton of fish, it says that there were 153 fish. 153. And so you and I might ask, well, so what? But according to Reynolds Price, there's no need to put that down unless someone remembered it. And that's just one example, but there are so many things that happen in these narratives that no one has ever seen or even thought of before. Things that couldn't be imagined. I found it interesting that in his book, Price actually quotes C.S. Lewis, um, this amazing passage which Lewis, who himself was a professor of ancient literature, this is what he says, and I quote, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none, not one of them is like this. Of these gospel texts, there are only two possible views. Either this is a reportage, you know, pretty close up to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now, why am I sharing all this? Because beneath the resurrection narrative, there are eyewitnesses. There's always someone like Mary Magdalene, we, we heard in today's gospel reading, that says, I have seen the Lord. Now, I know that there's a version of Christianity, uh, let's call it pop Christianity, it's popular, that has taught that it doesn't matter whether these events in the story of Jesus actually happened. All that matters is that Christians be good, ethical people who love others and make this world a better place. Now, this is an effort to create a non-historical faith, one that isn't grounded in what God has actually done in history, but only in what we do and how we live. Now, this type of popular Christianity even tries to read itself back into history as the original true Christianity. It claims that the original Jesus was simply a human teacher of justice and love. And only much later uh, did folks start uh, integrating sort of miraculous elements, introducing legends about his life. And only then was he presented as a son of God. Only then was there talk of a resurrection from the dead. And so in this popular version, the original faith was not about miraculous historical events. It was simply an ethic of love. Now, this narrative is not actually an updated version of Christianity. It's actually the creation of a new religion altogether. Christianity's unique message that you aren't saved by what you do, you're saved by what God does, is swept away, and the crushing weight of self-salvation is put squarely back onto the believer. Whereas the historical gospel takes that burden off of us. You know, the stark difference between this sort of popular version of Christianity and the original faith was put famously by Richard Niebuhr. And he describes uh, this version of Christianity that we're talking about. He describes it this way, and I quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin 
into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. And he could have added, without a resurrection. You see, this version of Christianity, a message of simple ethical love and hope, it could never have turned anyone's life, much less the Roman world, upside down. The powerful original message is this. God's power has come from outside of history into this world. Jesus died for our sins in our place so that through faith we can know his love and receive a guarantee of eternal life. And it's all by grace. It's a gift. He also, Jesus also rose from the dead, which means that if we believe in him, we will all be resurrected and every tear will be wiped away. You know, because Jesus' death for sin and resurrection happened, everything's changed. Everything. Now, why is it that we miss this? Well, I think that if we look at the story of Mary we heard today, we'll understand because in her story, we see ourselves. Now, let's remember what we heard. On Easter morning, that first Easter, Mary sees the empty tomb, and so she runs and she tells the other disciples who then come to the tomb, and they see the grave clothes, they see the empty tomb, and they leave. But Mary stays put. Now, what's noticeable is that Mary seems to miss all the clues of the resurrection. The empty tomb and clothes are there, right? That's a clue. Uh, she's also seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles, including raising the dead. And she knew his claims about resurrection. I mean, she clearly must have because Jesus' enemies knew. They put guards at the tomb. But when she gets to the scene, and by the way, there were two angels there, right? So there's all these clues and two angels. Does she say, wow, Jesus must have been resurrected? No, she says, oh, wow, they took the body. Why does she miss the clues of the truth of the resurrection? It's because she had her own narrative running through her heart and mind of how the world works. And resurrection didn't fit that narrative. And that narrative that she had going through her head and her heart blinded her from seeing what was right in front of her. You know, now before we all dogpile on poor Mary, the reality is that we're the same. Because we have a modern Western narrative running in our hearts and minds, we miss out on Jesus who's right in front of us. You know, ever since the Enlightenment a few hundred years ago, there's been this insistent uh, Western optimism about the inevitable progress of the human race. You know, like science and secularism would usher in utopia. And that was the, the story for the longest time. But then the 20th century happened. And we experienced two world, two world wars, a flu pandemic, and the Great Depression. And so all the promises of human reason failed. And instead, we got... Nazi death camps, and atomic bombs. You know, C.E.M. Jode, that famous atheist socialist professor of philosophy, he came to faith after World War II. And in his book, The Recovery of Belief, he described how he and all his colleagues had explained evil human behavior uh, with recourse either to Marx or to Freud. 
And so they didn't do sin talk. You know, They didn't talk about people being sinners. People were simply maladjusted. And Jode says that in his view, and I quote, this view was so pervasive in modern thought that it failed to prepare anyone for World War II. You know, he continues uh, sharing that that modern view of human evil that he had adopted unthinkingly as a young man, yet maybe was plausible in the first part of the 20th century uh, when things seemed to be improving. But then when he looked back on history after World War II, this view of human goodness and reason and progress uh, just seemed, and I quote, being rendered utterly implausible by the events in the 20th century. He realized that science did not improve human beings, but only improved their ability to get what they want. And then at the end of the section, Jode adds this personal note, and let me quote it to you. He wrote, it it is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed, disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, by the failure of true socialism to arrive by the behavior of the nations and politicians, above all, by the recurrent fact of war. Now, this ease, this unease about inevitable progress isn't just a reaction to World War II. You know, in their article titled The Uneasy Case for Technological Optimism, James Cryer and Clayton Gillette point out that modern technology brings in changes so quickly that their bad effects cannot be discovered before they are irreversible. And so sweepingly that their effects are catastrophic. They mention carcinogens and climate change as just two examples, though there are more. And even more recently, technology critics such as Kara Swisher of the New York Times are pointing out the dangers of social media and big tech. I mean, she regularly expresses alarm at how the biggest companies have decimated the news business and created this cultural situation in which We really don't know who to believe. And they have also provided all these tools for a complete loss of privacy and a surveillance state. Also, uh, there's been an altering of many retail industries in which the direction of putting more wealth in the hands of the few. I mean, Jeff Bezos, anyone? There's so much reason to be skeptical of this modern Western narrative of inevitable uh, secular progress. But why do we buy into it so easily? I believe it's because if it's true, it keeps us in control. We know what's going on. And if somewhere we don't, well, we're going to figure out a science for it. Don't worry about it. And so we choose to lower our skepticism for the modern Western narrative of the inherent goodness of humans and inevitable progress, right? But we spike up the We spike up the skepticism when it comes to the resurrection. And that's why when COVID happens, we unravel. I mean, look at Mary. Do you know what she's doing? Do you see yourself in her place? Mary is standing in the midst of the greatest sign of God's love and power and wisdom in the history of the world, and she just doesn't see that Jesus is right there with her. God is saving her. God is saving the whole world. God is putting together everything, and she doesn't see it. And here we are. We're standing in the midst of 
uh, pandemic, unemployment, in the face of sickness and death. And we're Mary. We refuse to see the promises of God in the resurrection of Jesus, that even in the worst moments, God's light and love are powerfully present. And we miss this. And instead, we cling on to modern tropes about uh, progress and advance and politics and science. In other words, those things that keep us firmly in control of our lives. The only problem is that, that we're not. Over and over again, history has proved that. COVID has proved that. You know, that's why St. Paul writes in our Corinthians passage today, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. He's absolutely right. Our true hope is found only in the gospel, in the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. And we miss it. Like Mary, we're prone to believe what we want to because it feels more convenient. And yet, there's hope. You know, when Jesus says her name, Mary recognizes what's been in front of her the whole time. Isn't that amazing? And yet the question comes up, would you, would I, hear the voice of Jesus if he said your name? I guess a deeper question is, how do we get to a place where we can hear God's voice? Well, let's keep considering Mary. You know, Mary is called the Magdalene. She's from Magdala. And so this city is like party central. I want you to envision like Las Vegas on the beach, right? It's well known for luxury. It's known for corruption. It's known for immorality. I mean, it wasn't a compliment to be called the Magdalene. Now, Christian tradition holds that uh, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute until she met Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke records that Jesus cast out demons from her. So you have to understand that her life was a wreck. She was a broken person and that Jesus put her back together. Now, what's amazing is that Jesus chooses her to be the first witness to the resurrection. And in Jesus' choice, we see the heart of God, God's priority for love and for grace. I mean, notice who he chose. Do you think that it was an accident? No, not at all. He chose a woman, not a man, right? He chose a person who had struggled so deeply with sex addiction and mental health issues, not someone who might be considered a pillar of society. And that's because this choice reveals the gospel of Jesus. And so the gospel is that Oh, the gospel isn't that the good are in and the bad are out. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. You know, Mary didn't have all the answers. And yeah, she missed some pretty big clues at the tomb. But she was able to see Jesus because she was honest about who she'd been. I mean, do you know why she stayed behind while the other men, they left? Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The fact is Mary admitted how broken she was and how in need of a savior she was. 
Can you and I say the same? I mean, do you wonder why we don't have this kind of encounter with Jesus? This might sound very strange, especially to modern ears, but let me say this. We don't know we're sinners. We are superficial in our understanding of our own brokenness. It's very often, it's the Marys of the world, the people who have been enslaved to addictions and yet turn to Jesus. They know. I mean, do you, do you know what kind of slave you are? Do you know that you are a slave to achievement or to position, to status, maybe in some cases to moral superiority? Do you realize that you are as broken as Mary? It's very possible that you are avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord, even if you're using him as an example. Until you see yourself as sinful as Mary saw herself, you're not going to see how wonderful Jesus is. And the hope in the resurrection, it's just going to pass you by. You know, what's really interesting is that when Mary finally uh, realizes Jesus, she cries out, teacher. And then Jesus responds, don't hold me. And I think that Jesus realizes that she wants to hold on to him the way that she knew him from before. You know, he was a wonderfully loving teacher. And so she thinks it's going to be like old times. Like, well, now you're going to tell me how to live, Jesus. You're going to teach me and I'm going to, you know, consider and live the way that you're sharing with me. And we're going to have this awesome teacher-student relationship. But what Jesus is saying is something like this. Mary, I want you to know there's something to come. There's going to be a new way to hold on to me. Mary, I'm ascending. And you don't understand yet, and you will, that I died for you and I'm going to rise and ascend and I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, why does Jesus say, my God and your God, my Father and your Father? Jesus is saying, because he's my Father, now he's your Father. Because he's my God, now he's your God. In effect, Jesus is inviting Mary and us to think this through. And so friends, let's think this through. You know, when it comes to uh, hoping in others or in ourselves, that is a relative hope. I mean, we can try to make the best decisions, but we can't guarantee outcomes. And we lie to ourselves and we treat our hope in others or in ourselves as 100% sure things. But when the object of our hope isn't others, but God, we can definitely have full assurance. You know, to have hope in God is to recognize that God and God alone is trustworthy, that everything else will let you down, and that God's plan is infinitely wise and good. And if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that confirms that there's a God who is both good and powerful and that brings light into every darkness, who is patiently working out a plan for our good and for the world's good. You know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien explains this difference between a relative hope and a true hope in my favorite passage uh, in The Lord of the Rings. And so uh, in this passage I'm talking about, Sam Ganji has been guarding his master, Frodo, during a terrifying journey through Mordor, 
This is an evil country. And at one point, he actually rescued uh, Frodo from a prison tower by sheer force of will. And so later, uh, he's falling asleep, and he sees a white star twinkling in the sky. And this is what Tolkien writes. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate, even his masters, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. You know, in the tower, Sam had trusted his plan. He had trusted his battle prowess. He had trusted his stoic anger. But real courage comes from self-forgetfulness based on joy. It comes from a deep conviction that we are here on earth and we're trapped temporarily in a little corner of darkness, but that the universe of God is an enormous place of light and high beauty that is our certain final destiny. And it's so because of Jesus. You know, Jesus was so committed to bringing us into that light and beauty that he actually gave up all glory and gladness and was plunged into the depths of darkness so that we can know that weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You know, there's a story about a chronically ill woman that whenever somebody said to her, oh, you seem like you're suffering so much, how do you feel? She always said, nothing the resurrection won't cure. She's absolutely right. If you know that the resurrection is coming, it is impossible, impossible to be in utter darkness. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Friends, let's pray. All merciful and loving God, we renounce our pride in all pretensions of self-righteousness, and we come to you in repentance and faith. We trust your death to give us life, and we believe in the hope found only in your resurrection. We praise you for the gift of salvation. Amen.